A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we let members of the historical community take current historical thought and give it a damn good smack bottom. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host, good friend and fellow history nerd, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week we're going to get a little racy, as this week the rage is devoted to that time-honoured subject of ladies' underwear. No sniggering at the back there, Glover. Guiding us on this journey, we welcome material culture and fashion historian, blogger and author of Shaping Femininity, Foundation Gardens, The Body and Women in Early Modern England, Dr. Sarah Bendall. Sarah, welcome to History Rage. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. You're welcome. Um, for those of you who, uh, who didn't pick that up from the accent, uh, Sarah is Australian. We've had to get up pretty much at the crack of dawn to uh, record this as a sensible time. And, uh, and we're taking Sarah well into the night. So thank you very much for coming on. Feeling angry? Yes, I'm very angry. <laughs> okay. Well, Sarah, you're a bit of an unknown quantity to us as a history rager, as uh, you and I connected after I saw your feature in the Australian Mail. So for us and our other listener, can you tell us a bit about yourself and, and your work? Yeah, of course. So I'm a, as you said, a material culture historian at um, the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne in Australia. So I'm in the Gender and Women's History Research Centre and my research to date really focuses on dress and ideas of femininity and masculinity, but mainly women's dress. Um, and how we can learn more, I guess, about women's lives and the past through the clothing that they wore. So that's really yeah, where my interests lie. Um, but also I'm interested in um, the making of dress and particularly women's role in the garment trades. And I love the 17th century. I'm, that's where my area, you know, is. And I always try to make the 17th century cool again because people seem to forget about it. <laughs> Over here, it's pretty much like plague and civil war. It's the 17th century, you know. It's, it's it's a tough sell. It's the 17th century over here. So, what led you to kind of that specific era of history and and that career in general? Is it was it a lifelong passion, or 
How did you discover that? Yeah, I mean, I've loved history ever since I was a kid. My parents really luckily indulged me in like history books. Um, I always wanted to be an archaeologist, actually. So I've always been interested in objects. I always just thought, though, that I was going to be an archaeologist. I was obsessed with Egypt when I was a kid. (laughs) But when I got older, I sort of became more interested in more modern history. And I was at university studying history. And I, I think, you know, my, it started with a friend was having a birthday party and it was history themed. And I decided that I was going to make my costume. And I wanted to make it historically accurate. It was a medieval dress. Didn't end up being that historically accurate, but I decided (laughs) I was going to, you know, research it. And I realized, wow, this is like such a fascinating way to look at history by looking at what people wore. And, you know, we obviously still wear clothing now and we, so clothing is such an interesting way to look at identity, but also different cultures and social norms. And I just sort of started incorporating it into my work. And then, um, yeah, as I decided to pursue history, I guess, at sort of the PhD level, I decided that that's what I wanted to focus on. So here I am. Here you are. Here you are. And I actually saw from the article in the mail as well that it just referenced that you you are now making historically accurate clothing. Yeah, yeah. So as part of my research, I do reconstruction. So there's a lot of objects that we either haven't survived or they have survived. And obviously, you know, as you'll find out in my rage, we have all these ideas about them. Yeah. And so one way, I guess, of sort of interrogating some of those ideas and myths um, was to sort of make the objects and then put them on on actual bodies and see what happens. Excellent. Well, while we're on the subject of that rage, then let's get on to it. So history rage is, of course, about that thing that's made you angry for, for so, so long. So... Please, Dr. Bendall, with as much emotion as you feel that it warrants, would you please tell us and our listeners that one thing that you wish people would just stop believing? Sure. I wish that people would just stop thinking that corsets are this like oppressive garment that historical women were forced to wear, that we had to hold on to the bedpost and have somebody with their leg in our back, you know, tight lacing us into these garments. Yeah, that is my pet peeve. It's not just my pet peeve. I think anybody that studies historical dress is like, this is our one of our number one pet peeves because no matter how <laughs> yeah. much you try and like, you know, nuance the discussion, people just, they just, they love corsets, but they love telling you about how oppressive and, and everything else they were. So that's my rage. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, and you're there basically, you're here to say that that's just, just not the case. And so before we get into the details of uh, your rage and how corsets aren't oppressive and aren't that uncomfortable, they still look pretty extreme. Just how, how exactly do fashions like that develop across history? Yeah, so I think one of the, the reasons why I am sort of quite opposed to this mm. oppression narrative is because my work looks at the first versions of the corset and why they came about. Um, So these are garments that came about in the 16th century in the courts of Europe, and they're really a form of power dressing. So the courts of Europe at this time, you know, you have in the late 16th century, you have a lot of 
you know, the Spanish Empire um, colonizing and invading South America. You have the Habsburgs who are taking over the Italian peninsula. You have all of these sorts of, you have, you know, princes like Henry VIII and Francois Premier in France that, you know, they're all peacocks trying to compete with each other and that's what their courts are doing. So it's really this heightened century of wealth and power and, 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 you know, men and women from different countries trying to project that. So corsets, which are at the time in English anyway, called bodies, and that's what they're called in French, obviously in French. And they're really this garment that is designed to, um, well, firstly, they actually only come about right at the end of the 16th century, this idea that corsets have been around, you know, they weren't wearing them in Henry VIII's court. They had other structure to their clothing, but it's really in the late 16th century that the first true sort of fully boned garment that we would call a corset comes about. But it's really part of power dressing that both men and women participated in. So the whole point of a corset during this period, a pair of bodies, is that they're sort of a conical shape. So it's to um, give you a, a very upright posture to pull your shoulders back. And, you know, they're still like that in the 18th century. It is to sort of slenderize the body, the, the, the beautiful physical ideal for, I guess, men and women at this period is sort of a long, slender torso. Um, but it's really for this aristocratic body, which is why you have other garments like ruffs, which men also wear that sort of force you to hold your head yeah. up in a certain position. Um, it's when you have these sort of hoop skirts as well. And men have quite big breeches during the period, sort of showing wealth. But men also participated in this. So men often wore, um, so they had doublets, which was like a jacket that men wore during this period, which often contained stiffening materials. And that also formed, uh, you know, forced men to sort of have this upright composure. And so there is this, um, that's sort of where these garments come from. They're a form of power dressing that the royal courts um, throughout Europe and in England participate in and they really come from these bodily ideals that dictate both men and women's bodies obviously in slightly different ways women's bodies were women were you know we we were formed from adam's ribs so you know we were inferior men uh we were the weaker sex so we needed more support but you know these sort of garments men had a similar equivalent garment at the same time as well yeah so far from being an oppressive garment this is actually a statement of power yeah, exactly. It's a statement of, you know, good breeding, you know, especially because you want to be able to, you know, physical deformity, especially that sort of plagued certain dynasties like the Habsburgs. You want to sort of project that <laughs> yeah. you are like, you know, good breeding stock, I guess. You can further you take your, your eyes off the chin. Yes, exactly. Oh, the Hab- yeah. We won't get into the Habsburgs. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so it is this form of power dressing. And, of course, you know, this is a very patriarchal time. So there are sort of, you know, gendered nuances that, you know, come into this. But, you know, I think I think people forget that it is really a form of power dressing to begin with. And, you know, over the course of the 17th century, which my research looks at, you have people from down the social scale starting to wear these garments and you know so it starts with this process of emulation you know royalty were the celebrities of the day the aristocracy um Mm -hmm. it was a way of showing your upward social mobility but then it really you know it is also a practical garment um i think people also forget that during this time you don't have certain tailoring or dressmaking techniques that we have now you don't have things like princess seams which are a curved seam that often go over women's breasts on the bodice of dresses 
So the sort of, to get your clothing to fit, there's no stretch in fabric at this time. You sort of have to have a solid base. And the best way to do that is a lot of these corsets during this time, they actually flatten the breasts. They, they, they don't sort of make the breasts, you know, push them yeah. up. They do in later centuries. But, you know, it's sort of – so, again, the sort of practical reasons. And also women don't have bras. So if you need breast support, this is a garment that does that. Yeah. And I suppose when you say that there's no stretch in the fabric, there's no different style of seams. If if you want to make your clothing fit you, you've got to move your body to the clothing rather than moving the clothing to the body. Am I right in that? Yeah. So during this period, sort of, well, I would say the body in in this period, it conforms to clothing, both for both men and women. Um, Whereas now I think our, our clothing does conform to our bodies. So that's why we have you know, princess seams because it's to it's to curve over the breast, for example. That's why we have stretch in our clothing because when we sit down, we want to be able to, you know, not have to like, I don't know if, if people remember like, you know, wearing denim that didn't have stretch in it in like the 90s, but like you would eat and like have to pop a button because, you know, there's no stretch <laughs> in there. And I think that's really hard for us to comprehend in the 21st century because all our clothing has stretch in it. Like I guarantee you, if you look at the tags on your clothing, there's some sort of elastane or spandex or stretch in the majority of garments that you wear. So, and that's just something that didn't exist. So, you know, our ideas of comfort are vastly different to even our grandparents' ideas of comfort because, you know, I wear, I wear vintage clothing sometimes and and a lot of, you know, a vintage pencil skirt from the fifties doesn't have any stretch in it either. So as soon as you eat, if you bloat a bit during the day like you notice straight away yeah well thank you it's um going from back to my kind of point where i say uh, it's not an oppressive item of clothing mm. it's this is a question it's quite a hard one for me to phrase actually it's, it's always been identified particularly with corsets throughout history that they are some item of male oppression that Mm. you ladies are going to wear that because that's how we want you to look and now one of my great underlying themes is that I don't feel that people really change that much over history as actual people Um, and as a result if I tried to get my wife to wear pretty much anything then I'm that's going to fall on completely deaf ears now I appreciate historically there is a there is slightly different power dynamic but the idea of that kind of uncomfortable I accept it's not uncomfortable mm. but that, that that idea of the man making his wife deliberately feel uncomfortable for the benefit of society just makes no sense at all how much of this is, is actually men's fault yeah and I mean this is yeah my pet peeve too because I think people when I say that I always want to add nuance into the discussion that there's there's two levels right there's social pressure in a very patriarchal society which this is you know 16th 17th century England is Mm -hmm. and then there's sort of that level of agency as well which would be you know men literally forcing their wives to wear these or you you know women being forced to wear them so on that sort of on that first level of living in a very patriarchal society yes there were certain beauty standards that you know that women were expected to try and obtain right because this is a time when the majority of women's social capital is their looks and their bodies you know that's just how it was you know they didn't have a lot of economic power or political power you know as you know unless you were an aristocrat at this time so yes there is that sort of that I guess um 
what would you say, that sort of like cultural yeah. oppression of women. And so, yes, you know, women were expected to look a certain way that, you know, the cultural ideal throughout a lot of this period is, a, you know, straight slender body is what they call like straight and slender. So, again, that is something that this garment during this time was being a conical shape, not an hourglass shape like it is in the Victorian period. That is something that this, you know, helps achieve. And, you know, later when that ideal, and that's why my book is called Shaping Femininity, because I look at the way that ideals of femininity change over time in the 16th and 17th centuries. But, you know, by the Victorian period, that ideal is that very sort of curvy body with which the corset then helps you achieve. Mm. So there's that level, right, where, yes, there is pressure from society, from culture, which is, you know, dictated a lot by men Mm -hmm. about women should look a certain way. But then you've got that other level of agency. And that's where it gets really interesting when you look back to earlier periods and even in the 19th century. So overwhelmingly in my research, there's not a lot of female voices that survive or at least unfiltered female voices. You know, we have voices from court um, trials where it's a deposition, but it's still, you know, a a male clerk writing it down. So overwhelmingly during this period it's actually men that are saying we don't like these garments we do not want you to wear these garments and they do so for various reasons so there's the sort of the the fear that women are hurting themselves using these garments and that's something that's reiterated constantly into the 19th century as well Um, or look at these silly women that are sort of you know these are torture devices why do they do this to themselves There's the religious idea that, you know, women are actually rebelling against God by changing their bodies from the sort of form that God intended them to be. Yeah. So sort of playing into this idea of, you know, the innate sinfulness of women. You know, we are daughters of Eve and Eve is the one that got us kicked out of Eden. And so all women are sinful. Again, this is like a very puritanical period. Yeah. So I like to sort of, you know, the distinction between the way that female sexuality of women are sort of framed between the 19th century, which is the lens through which we like to view a lot of history, particularly corset history in this earlier period, is the 19th century is this idea of women are pure and they're corrupted by men. During this earlier period, it's like women are devious and they are the corruptors of men. So that's like the very like different, like, you know, sexual politics and dynamics that are going on during this period. And then that sort of leads into the other type of criticism you get that women are hiding illegitimate pregnancies, they're using these garments to abort pregnancies, um, and then you just generally got the anxiety of what if they're really fat and I don't know because they're wearing a corset and I only find out once she takes her clothes off <laughs> or what if there's, you know, she's got a deformity and, like, it's crazy, but they literally, they talk about this in detail that women are deceiving them by, and they talk about makeup in the same way. You know, women are deceiving us by wearing makeup. Like what if, you know, what if she's not what she's actually trying to portray herself to be? So it's really interesting, this sort of narrative of male oppression when you look at this earlier period, because women are being called all types of things by male moralists Mm -hmm. anyway. But then you look at the record of what's actually going on and, you know, women are still, you know, even when they're being called whores and, and, you know, various different things, they're still purchasing these garments. And what's really interesting is there's a lot of evidence of their male family members purchasing on their behalf. You know, they're saying, if you go to London, I want you to buy this for me. And the male family members are like, yeah, cool. Okay, fine. So it's this idea that it's like, 
yeah, that they're, that they're being like, no, I've bought this and you have to wear it. That's yeah. like not what's going on. You have to wear this thing that nobody else is going to see apart from me. And yeah, it's always struck me as odd. And I, I will grant you, I am probably a the wrong age, gender or class to even be allowed an opinion on this. But in, if I would speak to my wife about kind of like social pressure about clothing, what mm. she would say to me would be that a lot of that, most of that social pressure, any of kind of like off the cuff re- remarks that she may be kind of upset by, are actually coming from other women, not from other men. Yeah. Um, is now that I appreciate again, they do things differently in the past, but do you see that sort of thing coming around in the, in in the seventeenth century through to the nineteenth century as well? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's a lot, um, and again, this sort of all takes you know, it's okay. This is all happening in this sort of paradigm of like patriarchy, right? Yeah. So it's sort of like women do often women uh, uphold patriarchy. They do police other women because it benefits them as yeah. well. So especially if I guess if you're uh, a woman who is sort of so during this period, for example, there's tons of examples of women policing each other. Um, there's a great book called Common Bodies by a professor in London, Laura Gowing, and that's all about women sort of embodied experiences, but women policing other women's bodies. So, you know, if a woman in the village was accused of possibly being pregnant outside of wedlock, she would literally be stripped and searched to, for evidence of pregnancy by other women. And often that's because if the shame of that would reflect on other women in the village as well. Yeah. So there's definitely sort of that going on. But, you know, even in the 19th century, which I think is most people's reference point yeah. for this, you know, a lot of people like to talk about the sort of early feminist authors that denounce corsets or other women writers and, you know, I've sort of never said that this is the most comfortable garment in the world, that all women love this garment. There were definitely women that probably hated wearing this garment. But I think a lot of people don't realise that a lot of these authors in the 19th century that are women are also sort of playing off what men are saying during this period as well. So they often are talking about, again, women's reproduction. So some are actually concerned about women not being able to re- reproduce but also there's a bit of a eugenics undertone in often a lot of their discussions of like, you know, the right women not being able to reproduce. Yeah. And a lot of them actually, you know, had good intentions. So there's sort of an argument in the 19th century that women being concerned with things like corsetry sort of, um, I guess, impaired our ability to be considered equal to men because, you know, we're still being obsessed with so-called frivolous things, whereas, you know, men are more rational. But again, that feeds into that narrative that men are rational and women are frivolous and that if we like things like dress, you know, or caring about how we look, that we are not smart and so we can never be equal to men. And so, yeah, this sort of, you know, it it becomes very complicated. It's it's really not simple at all. Thank you. So, when we're on the subject of these fashions and throughout those periods of history then, and again, this will be just as much of an education in the current world for me as it is uh, in the historical one, but what influences do we see coming through in fashion? What What is leading to these trends and, and who are the kind of like the the top models, the, the it girls of the times? Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. So definitely in the 16th century, it's, Definitely the royal courts in Europe that are the 
trendsetters. Mm. And I mean, that makes sense, right? They're the ones that have the money. They're the ones that can patronize the best, you know, tailors and people who make clothing. They're the ones that can afford to experiment with clothing. So they're the ones really sort of setting fashions in the 16th century. Um, Particularly, it's actually the Spanish Habsburgs that are really, that really set a lot of these structured styles that we see in the 16th century. So the sort of hoop skirts and the the corsets and, and the big ruffs. And that has sort of been, that's, you know, quite interesting discussion that people usually have about that. Um, you know, they, a lot of men's clothing, for example, mirrors what men's armor looked like during this period. So there's sort of all this sort of crossover. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, by the 17th century, the aristocrats are definitely the ones still setting the style standards. But... The reason I love the 17th century, apart from, you know, plague and famine and civil war, um, <laughs> and just the general boardiness of 17th century English people, it, like, I love it. It just makes me, yeah, yeah, they just say what they think, which is hilarious. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fart jokes and poo jokes also, which I, you know, yeah. always, who I am also who a Who doesn't love that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I will always laugh at a fart joke. Um but during the 17th century, you sort of have the middle, the middling classes. So we, when we sort of historians of this period, when we talk about people, we talk about like elite sorts and middle sorts and common sorts, because that's how people at the time spoke. They talked yep. about people being sorts rather than classes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you have sort of the middling sorts who are the ones that are starting to gain economic power, particularly in Northwest Europe. So in places like England and the Dutch Republic. And that's through new commerce and trade. You know, this is when the English East India Company first, you know, comes, has a lot of power, trading power. And you sort of, so you're getting, you know, these middling sorts who are lawyers and clerks and all that sort of stuff. They start to set the, the, the tone in, I guess, fashion as well, because they're the ones that now have the buying power to to buy a lot of fashion so when it comes to these garments it's really interesting because it's towards the end of the 17th century so at the start of the i like to use this sort of contrast at the start of the 17th century if you're a middling sorts woman or just a woman in general and you're wearing a pair of bodies so a corset you're a whore by the end of the 17th century if you're not wearing a pair of bodies or a corset you're a whore so this is the transition that sort of <laughs> happens during this period. So it's basically like women can never, like, you know, you can't win. And that's because by the end of the 17th century, that's when these garments sort of start to be less associated with the ostentatious fashions of the court. You know, it's got to do with various things like the civil wars that go on in England and sort mm-hmm. of the rejection of that sort of aristocratic culture. But also it starts to be associated with ideas of modesty. So this idea of... um Rather than concealing the body and what are women hiding, it's like, oh, no, like, it's good that they are sort of, like, concealing their saggy boobs and stuff like that. (laughs) So that sort of, like, you know, becomes more associated with ideas of modesty, which I think then flow through into the 18th and the 19th century. You know, it's it's akin to to going out without wearing a bra, you know, which I think, you know, a lot of women now, even though they think corsets are really oppressive, I'm guarantee you there would be a lot of women if you were walking around on the street not wearing a bra would come up to you and probably be like why what are you doing like what the hell are you thinking you know yeah like have a go at you so I used to be fair I go out without a bra on most days I know men are lucky it's <laughs> <laughs> difficult for me to comment there really but uh, it's, I'm noticing there then that is 
a lot about kind of wearing wealth and mm. wealth equates to power and that's where it would come out in the in the royal courts and then everybody wants to make themselves look richer yeah i mean it's like the emulating celebrities but what's interesting is sort of emulation sort of turns into their own rather than by the 70 end of the 70th century rather than necessarily emulating the elite they're sort of the middling classes are sort of setting their own agenda for what these garments mean yeah um and in turn for for you know their ideas of what women should be like which is what i find particularly interesting and you know these garments throughout the 18th century women wear them um and then obviously by the 19th century you know the majority of women are wearing them. But definitely by the end of the 17th century, a lot more women, you know, than we think are wearing these garments. It's just a part of everyday dress. Yeah, and is it the sort of thing that you can wear? Because we'd notice this when we look in medieval. Okay, when we look in the medieval period and mm. you, look at, you look at the kirtle we would use that most of our friends yeah. can uh, come and tell us about. There, there's a very much what they say is the distinction between the one that fastens at the front and the one that fastens at the back, because the one that fastens at the back says, mm. I can afford somebody to fasten this up for me. Are these garments something that, you know, a lady of the middle sorts towards the bottom end of things could actually just put on herself? Or is it the sort of thing that you are wearing because you need a maid to do it? No. So basically every example, nearly every surviving English example from this period until the very last couple of decades of the 17th century are all front fastening. They all fasten at the front. Even the one on the effigy of Elizabeth I, which was made by her tailor after yeah. she died and likely based on, you know, a garment that she wore in real life, they're all front fastening. So this idea that you needed a maid necessarily to lace you into the garment, you, you don't, I mean, obviously the queen would still be laced into it because she is a queen. Yeah, if you're going to be queen, you don't do up your own underwear, do you? Exactly. You know, you've got, you've got a heap of other people to yeah. do that for you. But the majority of garments that we that have survived, which obviously most of them are elite garments as well because, you know, a lot of everyday clothing doesn't survive because people literally wore it until it fell apart. Yeah. Um, Nobody sends their bra to the V&A, do they? Exactly. I mean, and also the Vino only collected the very top, yeah. you know, types of things. But yeah, they're all front fastening and the majority of them fasten over something called a stomacher, which is a triangular, like upside down triangle that you actually inserted under the, the lacing. And that actually allowed you to, um, you know, as you as your weight changed, as you bloated maybe throughout the day, you know, weight changed throughout the month, as a lot of women's weight does. Um, due to hormonal changes and stuff like that, it actually allowed you to loosen and tighten the garment however you wanted and you still sort of had, you know, this piece that would mm. still give that sort of rigidity that you want from the garment. But it, yeah, you didn't have to really lace yourself to get it. So, yeah, this idea, yeah, that, you know, the other women are like, you know, they can't breathe and, oh, my God, it's like they literally could control how tight their yeah. garment was laced yeah. throughout yeah. the day. <laughs> They, that classic scene that we see in Pirates of the Caribbean of Kira Knightley falling off the cliff because she can yeah. no longer take oxygen in. You know, where, where does that even come from? And that's the other part of my rage, the way that Hollywood just, like, <laughs> uses the corset. You know, you see it's the same scene in every movie. It's, like, Kira Knightley being done up in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's uh, Kate Winslet being done up in Titanic. The actress from Bridgerton being done up in that. And it's like, oh, my God, like, we get it, you know. <laughs> think that these garments are really uncomfortable and i don't know it, it's it yeah it always 
makes me angry because we project so much onto this historical garment without looking at ourselves. It's like we yeah. still, you know, you shapewear now. We still, you know, actually we've actually turned to surgery to change our bodies now, not to clothing. But also it's like there's tons of cultures all around the world throughout history that have modified their bodies for various cultural or social reasons. So this idea that, yeah, I I just think the corset becomes a convenient scapegoat without sort of having to look at ourselves and realise we still conform to many of the standards of beauty that women did in the past and we still try to achieve that artificially, as have many people throughout history. It's always struck me as something as, you know, I don't, don't know a huge amount about fashion, but fashion is generally what everybody wants to do and tries to achieve and um, and becomes eventually mass market. And something that actually restricts your ability to breathe, people aren't going to survive long enough for that to become an acceptable trend. Yeah. And I think, you know, so yeah, that's where, you know, I talk about, you know, women literally could control how tightly they were laced. If you wanted to really sort of like slim yourself down, you know, maybe maybe you're, you know, a 16-year-old girl and you see your crush down the road, so you like tighten yourself up a little bit more. But that doesn't mean that she, you know, spent the whole day doing that. And I think that's where it's really interesting because, you know, a big critique of corsetry in the 19th century, and, you know, this is talked about in the 16th and 17th century well, as well, is tight lacing. So this idea that women really are tight lacing themselves and they're fainting and all this sort of type stuff and this isn't to say like tight lacing was a thing but again that doesn't mean that every woman that wore a corset tight laced so again we're taking this sort of minority example which they did in the 19th century people who were sort of anti-corset and and anti-fashion in many ways a lot of these people were had a lot to say about a lot of different garments and we sort of take that and like push it onto I guess, to try and make a point about what everyone's doing. But that's like a very small subset. As with modern corsetry, like not everyone tight laces. You know, people like Dita Von Teese, for example, she has trained herself to get her waist really small, but that's through years of training to do that. And again, she doesn't wear a corset every day. So, yeah, this idea that, you know, every woman in history tight laced and that we're all fainting and, and this type of stuff, it's sort of taking that minority example and sort of applying it to everybody. And I think a lot of people don't realise during the 19th century, there was like their 19th century version of Photoshop. If you look at a lot of these images of women that people usually talk about when they're talking about tight lacing and corsets, if you zoom in enough, you can actually see that they have been altered to make their waist look smaller. So it's sort of 19th century Photoshopping going on as well. Airbrushing is quite the thing. Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
You've mentioned in your article that the historic woman is just shaped differently, and what was, com what was comfortable to them might not be comfortable to us. Uh, so how are Tudor through to Stuart women different from modern women? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. Um, obviously, social the social cultural world they lived in was mm. quite different to what modern women are living in. Although, again, I think, you know, I think we sort of still underestimate the amount of sort of social cultural pressure that women have to look a certain way and men have to look a certain way as well. But actually, the, the Tudor and Stuart woman wasn't too different to the modern woman in terms of body. They were about the same height as modern women, believe it or not. It's sort of really in the late eight, in the sort of the industrial revolution that heights go down a lot. I think a lot of people see small doorways in England and they go, oh, they must have been so short. And it's like, no, that was to keep the heat in the houses. <laughs> so in terms of like there's no such thing really as like the... I would, you know, the modern body or the historical body. So, like, women's bodies, you know, um, you know, in, obviously talking about English women now, were still pretty similar to modern English women's bodies. They were sort of the same height. Obviously, they didn't have the sort of problems with, you know, obesity and stuff that we have now. So, I, you know, I'm sure you could say that women probably av on average were smaller mm. back then in terms of weight. But, yeah, this idea that, yeah, that, you know, the historical body must have been just different to ours is is not really, um, you know, an accurate idea. And what was really interesting when I made these garments and put them on people, including myself, is how easily if you make the garment correctly as it was made at the time, so not like a lot of costuming on film and TV, they're not really making it totally correctly like yeah. they made in the past. And that's just due to budget and stuff like that. Yeah. But if you make it like it was in the past, you, it's these garments create like an optical illusion so you can make your body look like what you see in paintings from the period that you thought was like an impossible sort of these really long elizabethan bodies that you see a lot of that is an optical illusion created by the garment because the front of the garment often goes down quite low sort of like you know into the groin so it's it's yeah this really interesting mix of Yes, you sort of have to, you know, you're lacing your body into a garment, but it's creating an optical illusion as well, especially if you're wearing this garment with like a big skirt. So it's it's really fascinating, um, you know, and even myself, garments I've made for myself, sort of doing a before and after, right? This is what my body looks like without this garment on. This is what my body looks like with it on. And I'm not like tight lacing myself into it at all. I can mm. breathe, I can dance, I've been to parties in these garments. But it's the optical illusion created by the garment. And that isn't to say that there is evidence of some women's rib cages. You can see that they have been slightly deformed from wearing corsetry. But there's a great uh, anthropologist, her name's Rebecca Gibson, and she's actually done, she's written a whole book about the skeletons that she has studied. And a lot of these women lived very, you know, to be a ripe old age. So this was yeah. clearly something that didn't actually affect their health. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's set an awful lot of things straight there. Um, so in terms of you've mentioned the research um, and a, a lot of pet peeves and things like that, but mm. what what other sort of clothing and fashion myths are out there that your research has completely crushed? Yeah, so my book isn't just looking at early corsetry, so bodies and stays. It also looks at what we would, I guess, call hoop skirts. So at the time they were called farthingales. Yeah. Um, in the sort of 16th and 17th century. So 
Yeah, I've also looked a lot at those. And I mean, a lot of the criticism that was aimed at corsetry is also aimed at these garments. They're both sort of undergarments, although they both could be worn on the outside as well. But, you know, they are sort of shaping the body, I guess, yeah. the silhouette. So, yeah, you still get that sort of commentary of like, what are women hiding under their big skirts? You know, are they, are they pregnant? And we don't know. But a lot of the sort of rhetoric around these garments is that they're so big and like women couldn't fit through doorways and all of these sort of, again, exaggerated myths. And so when I sort of reconstructed a couple of these garments, it was really interesting actually to see what they do and don't do. So there's like one description of Queen Anna of Denmark, who's James I's wife in the early 17th century. It's from a Venetian ambassador saying that her skirts were like, was like five, four or five feet wide and the hips. So like this sort of impossible, you know, one and a half meters wide, basically. And I was like, okay, like, and a lot of that has sort of just been quoted verbatim and people have never really, I guess, looked into it and been like, actually, that's like really wide, (laughs) but also sort of interrogated it further. And yeah, so then I sort of was like, I tried to basically make one that big. And I was like, either I just don't know how to make this garment and we've lost sort of that engineering knowledge or Mm. it wasn't actually that big. And again, that goes down to that optical illusion. Like it looks when you're wearing a skirt that big with a corset that does sort of, you know, slenderize your torso, it looks massive, but it's not actually that big. So, yeah, there was really interesting myths like that. That is, And, you know, when I'm sort of making a, a Spanish style of farthingale, which is more traditional hooped sort of cone shape, and I'm sort of making it at the moment with the materials that they would have used at the time, which is so before whalebone, they're using something called bents, which are types of grasses and reeds, like beach yeah. grasses. And those are actually, like, incredibly flexible. Like, they're not sort of the steel cage that women are wearing. Like, they're very, very flexible. And we know that they were very flexible because there's so many, for example, in Elizabeth I's wardrobe accounts, there's so many entries into her tailors and farthingale makers having to put new hoops on the garment because obviously over time they would, I guess, not sort of bear the the skirts out as much as you wanted because they are this flexible garment that when you're sitting down and going through doorways or whatever, they are sort of getting crushed a bit. So you did have to like constantly replace them. So, yeah, I think this idea, yeah, that's sort of like another idea. That's another sort of pet peeve that these, I think this kind of goes down to, you know, again, this sort of like inherent, slightly inherent sort of misogyny in talking about women and fashion that like women are just stupid and like, you know, they're sheep and they'll do whatever, you know, and it's like, they weren't dumb. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, men and women in the past weren't stupid. Like, even though it doesn't make sense to us now, it doesn't mean that it didn't make sense then. And also doesn't mean that they couldn't fit through doorways. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're potentially using as your source, punch magazine it is satire not fact exactly i think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these ideas we have a fashion in the past literally was satire there were satirical prints in yeah magazines like punch yeah. in the 18th and the 19th century and so they really like should not be taken as fact yeah, yeah. Uh, you recently published your book shaping femininity available in the history of age bookshop um, what are you working on next? What other projects or books have you got uh, lined up? Yeah, so I've got a couple of projects on the go. So um, both are actually born out of shaping femininity. Mm. So again, you know, you come across things and you're like, I 
don't have time to talk about that in this book. So my first one is the use of whale products in fashion, um, particularly during the early modern period. So obviously one of the materials that defines corsets through their whole history and, and you know, during this period as well um, is something called whalebone, which is what they called at the time. It's not actually bone. It's um, what we now call baleen. So it's sort of the keratinous material that's in the mouth of baleen whales that helps them filter food. So it's made out of the same stuff as your fingernails. So the reason that they used it in the past was it's quite flexible and you can it's easy to cut. It's really, I mean, a great material for what it was used for at the time. Mm. So in that project, I'm looking at, again, the sort of early history of this. When did Europeans start to use it? Why did they use it? When does it become really widespread? And also how does it affect the way that Europeans manufacture things, but also the way that they think about the natural world around them. So there's really interesting sort of, I found some really interesting material, you know, that, you know, do people understand what a whale is? Like, do they understand what this material is and where it's coming from? So that's sort of, I guess, looking at fashion and like manufacturing of fashion and materials, but also this sort of wider history of sort of um, the natural world and the environment and what Europeans are doing there. Um, And my other project that I'm working on um, is actually, again, born out of shaping femininity. So for the book, I had to look at a lot of wardrobe records of English queens during the 17th century. And their wardrobe accounts and their household accounts in general are just really fascinating to see what's going on and what they're wearing and who they're they're sort of patronising and stuff like that. So my new book project is looking at the artisans and suppliers that these queens, sort of I call it the Stuart 17th century, so I am looking at Queen Anne in the very start of the 18th century. Yeah, who's making their clothing? Who's There's a lot of sort of aristocratic women that are, I think, only ever usually talked about in relation to their uh, either their husbands or their relationship to the queen. You know, Sarah Churchill, for example, the Duchess of Marlborough and yeah. her relationship with Queen Anne. But I don't think a lot of people realise that these women actually had paid positions within the royal household and they weren't honorary positions. They were actually doing work. So Sarah Churchill, for example, was the keeper of the privy purse and the mistress of the robes. So she was literally in charge of clothing the queen and dealing with artisans and suppliers and making sure that what they were making was, you know, correct and everything like that. So, yeah, I'm sort of looking at uh, particularly the women in these accounts and and what they're doing. So both aristocratic women, but women who are living in London who are artisans and making these garments often alongside their husbands and other things like that. So they're my two new projects. If I could just... So I kind of asked one on that because it's just occurred to me something that I'd never really thought about before. You talk about Sarah Churchill and she is mistress mm-hmm. of the robe. And where, when you use like terms like mistress of the robe and things like that, you think of you, you think of somebody whose job is to dress the queen, as in to mm. put the clothes on the queen. And that's not what we're talking about here, really, is the marketing and PR person of Queen Anne. Yeah. Yeah, it's that... That you know, I am in charge of what you look like to the rest of the world. Am I? Am, am I going down the right line there? Yeah. So it's definitely. I mean, Anne was definitely. So these queens were all involved in their image, but these women were really they're like they're the managers. They're the household managers. They're the ones that are getting stuff done. And so definitely, when it comes to Queen Anne, obviously her and Sarah had such a close relationship. 
there is definitely an element there of Sarah being in, because, you know, and also because Sarah was such a dominant personality and Anne wasn't sort of being in control, definitely. So there's, I remember reading it, there's sort of criticism that was levelled at Sarah in relation to the Queen's wardrobe. You know, she's not dressed as, you know, royalty should be. And Sarah's sort of saying, I've dressed the Queen in, like, the best clothing. And she really, you know, the Queen did. Like, I'm going through her accounts and she has the most amazing clothing and, you know, the top of the line sort of stuff. So, yeah, definitely that was sort of a when um, someone wanted to insult Sarah, she would they insulted the Queen's clothing, being like, you're not doing a very good job being mistress of the robes because, again, she's the one who is, like, organising the clothing literally to be made and to be brought to to the queen and everything like that. So yeah, there's definitely interesting stuff going on there. Um, And she was paid very well Mm. to do it as were all these women. So, but yeah, I think a lot of people just think these are honorary titles and that these, you know, but it's, they're not at all. Like these women are, are doing work. I think we might have to get you back on to, to give out the reality (laughs) of, uh, you know, of the lady in waiting, the, the, the mistress of the robes so far. Yeah. Yeah, let's get you back on for a later uh, series once I've done that project to really rage on that. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, I can say as a middle-aged, privately educated Englishman, that was so far out of my comfort zone, I could barely see the horizon. (laughs) Um, But should the conversation start, I am now armed with the facts. And Kyle, I think we're going to wow Chalk Valley with our presentation on ladies' underwear. But suggestive innuendo aside, Sarah, thank you very much for coming on and sharing sharing your rage yes thank no, you very thanks much. so much for having me and letting me vent <laughs> if you'd like to know more about sarah's work and research then you can first of all read the excellent book which we'll be highlighting in the history rage bookshop you can read sarah's blog of cultural history at www.sarahbendall.com and finally you can follow her on twitter at sarah a bendall and we'll have links to all of those in the show notes so once again sarah Thank you very much for coming on and getting angry for us and our listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what gets your knickers in a twist. Please subscribe, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does mean a lot to us when you do that. In the meantime, thanks a lot for listening. From all of us at History Rage, bye-bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.